0: Our first reading this morning comes from Mark, which you'll find on page 829 in your few Bibles, starting at verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema, Sabachani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And our second reading comes to us from Joshua, uh, which you find on page one seven one. Starting verse verse two starting at sorry, chapter two verse starting at verse one. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho Jericho sent this message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy on our whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they would come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she would laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of, of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. And before the spies laid down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen upon us. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives, for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall And she said to them go, go to the hills So the pursuers will not find you Hide yourselves there three days Until they return And then go on your way
1: Well, a great little story uh, Brother Sisters, we'll pray in a moment But let me just make a comment uh, for those who are new amongst us uh, One of the ways uh, that we operate here at Norwest, one of our ministry convictions, is that actually we know that our staff here don't have all the answers, far from it if you know us, but we do believe that God does. And we do believe that uh, everything we need to know for life and health and safety, uh, actually for walking with him, is found in his word. So our preaching here is always an attempt to open up God's word Uh, So we can understand him better and respond to what we read. That being the case, as I speak today, uh, I'm going to be speaking from uh, Joshua chapter 2. And it will be enormously helpful if you have it open in front of you so you can see that I'm not making it up. That would be enormously helpful. Let us pray. Commit our time to God. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for bringing us all here today for varied reasons. Uh, Father, you know us for you made us. You know our hearts. You know our needs. And you know that we need your son. Will you speak to us today, through your word and in the power of your spirit, for Jesus' sake. And then we pray, in his name we pray, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, can I just start by saying it is wonderful to see the faithful remnant here this morning, while the rest of our church and indeed our suburb are either at the beach or playing cricket or swimming in pools or whatever, you are here. God bless you. It's great to be together, isn't it? Uh, my family aren't here, so they're doing one of those other things. I'm very sorry about that. But uh, uh, Today we start our five-week summer series, a series we've called The Splendour of Salvation. Uh, it's going to be a series where we're going to look at five people who are lost and then found. Five lives, five moments, five stories of salvation. And what we're going to find are that the people who are saved, people who are found, people who find salvation are surprising. We wouldn't expect them to be the people who God would find and save. And today we start with a somewhat obscure story 3,600 years ago in the book of Joshua. Now, I wonder if you've ever been reading the Bible and stumbled across a part and you thought to yourself, I wonder what that is doing there. Either you don't get it, it doesn't seem to make sense, or it doesn't seem to fit in with what's around it in the story that you're reading, or it doesn't seem to square with what you read in another part of the Bible. Well, I've had all those experiences. And I want to say that today we stumble across a section like that. You see, Joshua 2 is a great little story, but one that is hard to work out what's going on. Here's why. If you think about the storyline of the book of Joshua... Joshua 2 doesn't need to be there because Joshua 1 finishes with Israel, that's God's people, saying to Joshua, their leader, we will go with you into the promised land. As we obeyed Moses, so we'll obey you. And then chapter 3 starts with Israel packing up their camp and getting ready to go into the land. And chapter 2 sort of just pops in the middle of this storyline with this strange tale about a strange prostitute. Well, What we're going to find this morning is that without this story in Joshua, we would be the poorer for it. We would be underdone in our understanding of who God is and what he's doing with Joshua and indeed with us. It's a story that reveals the splendour of salvation. So just to remind you where we're up to in the book of Joshua, this is the first book in in the Bible that comes after the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. We've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. Moses has died. Joshua is the new leader who's come up. And Israel, God's people, are on the verge of taking the promised land, the land that has been promised to them for the last five books. And what we read in Joshua 2, what we've just heard read, is the story of two spies who head into the city of Jericho to check it out, And to find out what Israel are going to find before Israel come in and attack the city. That's sort of like a forward party who have come in to check it out. And one of the most surprising little details in this story is the fact that they go and hide, these two spies, in the house of a local prostitute, Rahab. Now we're not told why they go to her house. But it's probably because men could come and go from a house like hers and not too many questions would be asked. And Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute, she's not Jewish, she's an enemy of Israel. Uh, Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute, protects these Israelite spies. And in the section we're going to look at today, she's going to explain why. Can you look at verses 9 and 10, if you've got that in front of you. In verses 9 and 10, we are going to find the exact opposite of what we would expect. Okay? Verses 9 and 10, we're going to find the exact opposite of what we'd expect. See, in verses 9 and 10, we would expect to see... Uh, These two Israelite spies telling Rahab the wonders of their God, of the God of Israel. And yet we see the exact opposite. We see Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute, telling the Israelite spies the wonders of their own God, of the Israelite God. Now, straight away, something strange is going on. We'll come to this a bit later, but a Canaanite telling a Jew the, the mighty acts of the Jewish God? Very bizarre. Let's have a look at what she says. So the first thing she does is she starts to to look back and to tell these Israel uh, these Israeli spies uh, the great powerful deeds of their own god. So verse 10 says, "We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt." Now here, uh, Rahab is referring back to this historic day when Israel crossed over the Red Sea to escape the Egyptians. You might remember this story. She's actually talking about the Exodus, which is the story told in the second book of the Bible of the same name, Exodus. And that was the day when Israel crossed the Red Sea that forged Israel's identity. That, that would be the day that Israel for a thousand years would look back on and know that that is when God made them to be a people. So if you were alive back then and you were to say to another Israelite, so when was it that you became a people? They would look at you like you were mad and then say, when we crossed the Red Sea. And here we find, in, uh, sorry, and we find this in Exodus 13.3. So it's on the screen. So in Exodus 13.3 it says this. Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. It was written into Israel's law that they were to remember this. And here we have a Canaanite confessing that Israel's God is mighty to save. But then Rahab goes on and she says this, uh, verse 10 and 11, uh, we also know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Now you can read this story in your own time if you like. You'll find it in Numbers 21, uh, verses 21 to 35. And what this story tells us is the story of how Israel, again under God's hand, absolutely destroyed opposing cities that they came across as they were moving towards the Jordan. And Rahab, and presumably all of Jericho, has heard this as well. And Rahab recognises that the destruction of those cities was the judgement of God. I wonder if you see what's happening here. In this first confession on the lips of this Canaanite prostitute, Rahab acknowledges what most people will not. That there are two aspects to the might of God. God is mighty to save, as he did at the Exodus and God is mighty to judge as he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. This pagan knows that God is mighty to save and mighty to judge. But there's something I want us to focus in on today that is slightly different to that and it is this. Did you notice that for Rahab, her faith grows out of a knowledge of facts? Her faith grows out of facts. Did you know that faith grows as people hear of real-time events? That's certainly what we see here. The basis of Rahab's faith, did you notice that, was hearing with her ears these mighty acts of God, these incredible times in history when God had acted with power and might in ways that seemed unbelievable and Rahab heard and believed. And so did you. Didn't you? If you sit here today, someone who has entrusted yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't that because you too heard of real events in real time? That the basis of you coming to faith was hearing of the mighty acts of God in history, those incredible times in history that God had acted with power and might in ways that seemed unbelievable, but you heard and you believed. The son of man's death on the cross. The son of man's rising from the dead. If you are a Christian, they are, those historical events are the underpinning of your your relationship, your faith in God. I do wonder if you've noticed that there are people who sometimes like to jam a wedge between knowledge of facts on the one hand and faith on the other. They want to jam a wedge between the intellectual over here and the spiritual over there. Uh, The people who do this are are those who are not Christians often, but also those who are Christians. That is to say, there's a lot of people who fall into this trap. So sometimes you'll hear people who are not Christians pit faith against knowledge, and you'll hear hear it in a range of ways, but sometimes you'll hear it like this. Oh, look, you believe in Jesus, and that's good for you but I believe in science. Have you heard that? Of course you have. It is, of course, a false dichotomy or diversion. You can actually, I mean, newsflash, you can actually believe in Jesus and science, recognising that they answer different questions. But it's not just non-Christians who, who pit these things against each other. Christians can do it as well. It just looks a bit different. So sometimes I will hear Christians say, look, Pete, I'm not really into theology I'm more into action. I wonder if you've heard this. I don't think Christians should bog themselves down in dogma and doctrine. They should get on with serving the poor. Now, there might be some amongst us who actually hold to this view, to which I want to say to you, that is also and similarly a false dichotomy. It is very possible to be into both theology and action Indeed, as J.I. Packer, that uh, wonderful Canadian author, has put it, theology is for doxology. What's doxology? It's worship. He says, no, theology is for the worship of God, and if it's not for that, it's not theology. Or C.S. Lewis puts it like this, a bit different. For my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books, and I rather suspect that, uh, that the same experience may await many others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden when they, uh, when they are working through their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. Do you find that when you have your pipe in your teeth? <laughs> but you see what he's saying. Right? His point is that actually studying theology must be deeply practical to the way one lives and serves God. It leads to worshipping God. Look, the point is that both Christians and non-Christians can make the mistake that believing in Jesus is actually anti-intellectual. And Rahab shows us that that is rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Rahab is not anti-intellectual. Rather, her faith in God is rooted in and falls out of and grows out of God's amazing acts in history and her knowledge of them. To those here who aren't Christian, uh, uh, Rahab would say, look, it's not faith versus knowledge for me. My faith is based on knowledge. Uh, to those here today who are Christian, uh, Rahab would say, look, it's not theology versus action. My actions are based on my theology, my knowledge of God. And friends, this, of course, influences and informs what we do here as God's people. The way we preach, the way we sing, the way we think, uh, what we do is we study God's word in smaller groups. As we share the gospel with people around us, primarily what we do here at Northwest, what you do is we repeat God's amazing acts in history. For we know that out of this faith grows. So that's faith, Rahab's first confession. She reveals the might of God, both being mighty to save as well as mighty to judge. But then her second confession uh, reveals the majesty of God. So look at verse 11 is what Rahab says. When we heard about it, she's now referring back to verse 10, God's great those historical acts of salvation and judgment, when we heard about these things, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now, please notice very carefully the second part of her statement here where she says, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. For those words almost verbatim were the very words that Israel were to proclaim. This was a fundamental rock bedrock belief for the jewish people so in deuteronomy chapter 4 this is what it says sorry there's that quote everyone see it good next one okay so deuteronomy 4 moses says to israel as they camped outside the promised land acknowledge and take to heart this day that the lord is god in heaven above and on the earth below there is no other and now here is one inside the promised land a non-jew laying claim to the very same promise But look who says it. Here's another surprise. It is a pagan prostitute. Did you know that the very first person to acknowledge uh, that God is Lord of all in the promised land was not a Levite priest, was not a leader like Joshua. It was a common pagan Gentile hooker. I mean, her whole identity to us is revealed to us by her profession. The very first verse of this chapter tells us they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Ever wondered why that detail is there? Why didn't it just say a woman, a lady? Now, before we answer that, I want to remind you of another similar confession. Another person in the Bible who unexpectedly, to us, recognises who God is. Can you remember in the Gospels, you know Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, who the very first person was to confess Jesus to be the Son of God after he died on the cross? On whose lips were the cry, surely this man was the son of God. It was not a disciple. It was not even a Jew. It was a Roman centurion. A common, pagan, Gentile soldier. And I think the same point is being made in both stories and it is this. The majesty of God is for every tongue to sing. The majesty of God is for every tongue to sing. And if this is the case, if even common pagan prostitutes and soldiers can recognise who God is and proclaim his name, if we see God being recognised here by people of various ethnicities and various societal classes, then why are Anglican churches in Sydney so monochrome? Have you ever wondered that? If the gospel is for the nations if the gospel goes out to people so different to us and draws them in, why not here? Why are Anglican churches in Sydney generally full of well-educated, well-employed, Anglo-Saxon Australians? You know, a number of years ago, I worked at Greenacre Anglican. uh, Greenacre right next to Lidcombe. Uh, We were ministering within a suburb where 66% of the suburb... Spoke a language other than English at home. At the church I was a member of in Greenacre, one family, one was from a non English speaking background. The vast majority of those non English speaking people who lived around us were Lebanese in their background. There was not one Lebanese family in our church. The question is why did that church remain this Anglo enclave? Look, that's a complex question and there's a range of answers for it, which I'm happy to speak to you about after the service. But the fact is, about eight years ago, that church essentially closed down. Of course, we're in a pretty different situation here where I think the demography of our area and the demography of our church actually match quite closely. I think what we have today here is a reasonable reflection of what is actually beyond the walls of this church. But here's my question. Will it be in ten years? As Sydney changes, as Borkham Hills changes, will we end up being this mainly Anglo enclave within a diverse suburb around us? Let's not worry about 10 years. What about now? I think we should be asking ourselves the question, is there anything that we do here at Norwest as a church that by its very nature welcomes some, but not others? Not deliberately. These things are never deliberate. They're subtle, but are they there? Are there things we do that reinforces in some way that this church is for the successful, the well-educated, the well-spoken, the white? I'm talking about the things that we can't even see that might unintentionally reinforce the view that there are some who are more welcome than others in this place. Does our website say to the Indian people in our area, you are so welcome to come in here and hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus? Does the colour and nationality of our welcomers out the front say to the Sri Lankans in our area who turn up that our church is for you? Do the people up the front here who read the Bible and pray and preach say to the many Chinese people who are coming along here, if you love Christ, this church is yours? Is there anything that we're doing here that actually says Norwest Anken is not for Canaanite prostitutes? Not for Roman soldiers, not for single mums, not for those who are heavily tattooed, not for smokers, not for those who aren't like us. I hope not. But I fear so. And this is where those who are newer to our church family can help us. Because those of you who are newer have cleaner eyes. You haven't got into the culture here yet, which is a good thing for a while. And you can see things that we miss, and you can tell us. You know, the confession of faith on the lips of Rahab, I think, certainly encourage us to think about how we can do this better, how we can be a place where every tongue, every soul, every colour can sing the praises of our Lord and God. Well, have a look at verses 12 and 13, because we see Rahab's final appeal here, her final confession. And it's a confession that acknowledges the mercy of God. Here's what she says. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Again, you've got to remember who's saying this. This is not a Jew. This is a Canaanite, a person outside of Israel, outside of the promises of God. There's no promises of God explicitly for her. And yet we see a true confession of faith. Faith that can only have, do, faith that can only have been given to her by God and more than that this is a mature faith this isn't faith that just says I believe in God this is no mere acknowledgement of there being a God out there somewhere this is faith that has caused someone to throw themselves at God's mercy because then she says give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my family that you will save us from death see Rahab knows not only about God but about his judgment she knows there's nowhere else to turn she reminds me of Peter in John 6. When he was asked, was he also going to desert Jesus, walk away from God like so many other of his disciples, he said this, Lord, who, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He throws himself at God's mercy, just like Rahab. See, the amazing thing about Rahab is that she knows God so well. She understands rightly the terror of this God and yet she senses that there also might be mercy in him as well. And I wonder if we've lost something of this. I reckon we get the second part right. I think we understand the mercy of God, that he would send his only son Jesus to die on a cross for us because of his deep love he has for us, for this world. But I wonder if we have forgotten the terror of the Lord. Perhaps this is an angle we've let slip. Isn't it just possible that... We all domesticate God to make him more comfortable for us. We've imagined God to be much more like us than he is. You know, in 1961, the American Christian writer A.W. Toza, some of you will be familiar with him, said this. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right when our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. Rahab gets this. She thinks of God more nearly as he is. And God, as we meet him on the pages of the Bible, is actually more frightening than you can imagine and more gracious than you would hope. And Rahab knows that. And she throws herself at him. And that is why the New Testament speaks so glowingly of this prostitute. Do you know that? Hebrews compares Rahab with who? Abraham and Moses. The book of James calls her righteous for the way she acts. And the Gospel of Matthew puts her in a genealogy, to show, a genealogy to show that Jesus Christ himself was a descendant from her line. And here we see why this Canaanite prostitute acts the way she does. For she knows her God, his judgment and his mercy. She's coming to find the splendor of salvation. And Rahab shows us that the praises of God are for every tongue to sing. That's one part of the the glory of salvation. Rahab is showing us here that God is not just for the well healed the well-educated, the hills, living, city-working, but for everyone. Our Lord Jesus Christ is for Roman centurions and for Canaanite prostitutes and for us all. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this small little story smuggled into a book which on first glance doesn't even really seem to fit. But of course it does. Because it humbles us and opens up our eyes to who you are, to how you see this world and to how you see people you have made. Will you sear our hearts, convict our minds that you are for all? that you long for the broken to come to you. And will you make us a church less and less monochrome and more and more a reflection of those who will stand around your throne on the final day singing praises to your son.
0: And we pray this in his name. Amen.